This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Taya Abret, author of Inland. I grew up in the small apartment in, in Belgrade. There were four of us living together. Um, and before I was born, my great-grandmother had lived and died in that same apartment. And now both of my grandparents have passed away in that apartment. And, it, and there's this notion of just of, of, of a continuum of souls permeating and surrounding everything. We'll hear more from Taya in just a minute. I want to tell you a little bit about this podcast. I've been reading a book a week for the last six plus years with the goal of offering insight into craft, theme, and the literary life. This month, I completed my 250th interview. That's 250 books read and 250 interviews in the archive. And all of these conversations are a striving toward fulfilling curiosity and seeking to better understand what makes us human. Fiction, poetry, and nonfiction are all grasping to discover in their own form the mysteries of this brief life on Earth. I hope this interview you're about to hear and the ones that have come before contain content you don't find elsewhere. Here in this interview with Taya, we'll hear that she was willing to throw away 600 pages of a novel in order to find what really interested her. That takes guts and commitment. And with this podcast, I'm committed to you to keep going, to keep reading, to keep interviewing, to bring you these shows, which I hope offer meaning to your life as a writer, reader, or simply curious soul. I know a lot of you are listening in your cars or in your headphones or as you walk outside, maybe you're exercising or cooking in your kitchen, and I recognize your computer is not at your fingertips. But I sincerely invite you to support First Draft at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. For your support, you will receive extras from the show, interview segments that didn't make it to the final version, writing tips from authors, and books. Please consider when you go to your computer that this is a task worth remembering. Your patronage keeps these conversations going. The first tier of giving is just $6 a month, and at the end of each month, I email you with links to all the extras. I can't do it without you, and it's a great way to spend $6 a month. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Taya Abret author of the novels The Tiger's Wife and Inland. Her work has appeared in Best American Short Stories, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Harper's, among others. She is originally from the former Yugoslavia and now lives in New York, where she teaches at Hunter College. Taya Abrat's novel Inland takes place in 1893 in the drought-ridden lands of the Arizona Territory. The point of view alternates between Lurie, a former outlaw who is haunted by ghosts, and Nora, a homesteading frontierswoman waiting for her husband and older sons to come home. Nora is suffering a severe bout of thirst as her water supplies have run dry. As she waits for her family to return, she cares for her youngest son and keeps company with Josie, a sort of clairvoyant, who disturbs Nora, even as Nora herself has conversations with her deceased daughter. Meanwhile, Lurie, after being on the run from the law and living his days by merely surviving, 
joins the first and only U.S. Army survey team to travel through the West on camels. Once part of the Camel Corps, Lori has a distinct path through the desert that leads him to Nora's door. We began the conversation with Taya Abret talking about her inspiration for writing a Western. The idea of a Western came to me long before uh, this book actually did. You know, I, I grew up uh, in the former Yugoslavia, um, and when the war started, we we left and we spent years on the move. We were in Cyprus for a while. I grew up in Egypt. We came to the States and moved around basically every three years. So the idea of home for me has never really been anchored to a sense of place. It's always been more about people and the household. Um, my grandparents raised me uh, and, and, and my maternal grandparents and my mother raised me in the same household. And maybe six or seven years ago, I started spending time in the mountain and Southwest. And in addition to being completely bold away by the landscape and, and the sort of unbelievable feeling of, um, of, of spirituality that overcomes not just me, but lots of people who go there. Um, I also uh, was surprised to feel very homesick for it whenever I left, to feel like I had arrived someplace that I didn't really want to leave and um, which had a, a central role in my life. And, and I think that it, it was particularly jarring to experience that for a region I had never really spent any time in before and to which I had absolutely no connection. And it's not a feeling that is so entirely divorced from the way that we mythologize the American West, right? Like this notion of stranger coming and having sort of a personal epiphany. And so I, I knew that I'd have to, to write about that in the next book, whatever it was. And so that's how, how I, I started tooling around with the idea of a Western. Um, this particular one uh, uh, came several years later, uh, courtesy of a podcast, actually. What brought you to the Southwest and, and what was the podcast? We were going to meet friends on holiday. We spent time in, in Arizona and Wyoming and I had never been to either state. Actually, that's not true. I had driven through Arizona once driving from Los Angeles to Pittsburgh when I first moved out to go to grad school um, at Cornell. Yeah, it was just, it was just, a, it was a trip. Uh, <laughs> um, the podcast was stuff you missed in history class. And I had already been a fan for a little while before I, I came across this episode. Um, so I had written a, um, a Western that was sort of more about range wars and it was more of a realist Western. Um, and I had gotten to the end of it, um, I believe in 2015, in late 2015. Um, and it wasn't, I could tell that it, it didn't have sort of, um, it didn't have the, the kind of heart that I wanted it to have. It wasn't addressing anything that I had especially on my mind. And so I started looking around for other stories to, to hook into, um, hoping that they would, you know, give it more heart or revive it in some way. And I came across this episode about something called the Red Ghost. And it centered this campfire yarn about two Arizona homesteading women who are attacked on their ranch one evening by a, a quadruped beast of unknown origins that may or may not be supernatural. It is this huge, you know, shaggy red horse. It's got a demon jockey 
on its back and they have a violent encounter with it and it, and it runs off into the bushes and sort of continues to haunt the area for many years. And the podcast then went on to contextualize this encounter uh, in the real life history of the United States Camel Court, which I had never heard about. And I remember hearing the story for the first time and just being absolutely stunned that I'd never come across it and that it was so incongruous with so many things that, that, you know, that I had learned about in the, in the mythology of the West. And that's where it, that's where the, the, where I got the bug for this particular tape. That's so interesting. The, the intersection that happens between the news and fiction and real life and fiction. Is that something for you and for your craft that's essential? I think so. For me personally, so much of what makes me engage with a particular project is this is this um, tightening knot of coincidence and relevance. Things start to feel like they have a theme, you know. Uh, things start to feel serendipitous to your life and and to the questions that you're asking. Um, and 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 I think it's. For me personally, it has always been really important to listen to that. Now, I'm 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 a very superstitious person, and so, um, and so I, I think I, I have there's a little bit of um, confirmation bias in in certain ways about that kind of thing. But um, but yeah, it has very rarely led me to the wrong thing by the time it happens. Is the superstition something inherent in your family, in your background, where you're from? I think it, I think it must be, you know, um, I mean, it's certainly inherent to my, my family, both the nuclear family, um, and, and the wider one. I did grow up with a cultural sense of, of, you know, leaning really heavily into apotropaics, talismans, the idea of sort of hedging your bets about things, never being too happy or too sad about something. It's certainly a cultural thing within our family. And, and, and it has been my experience that is also a, a cultural thing belonging to my background, but also lots of other backgrounds too. So you said, you know, when you had finished another novel of the West, it, it didn't address what you wanted to address. And what did you want to address? And do you know that in the beginning or does it sort of come out through the writing and what happened here is it didn't come out through the writing. Uh, it's exactly that. I never know what it is I, that I want to address in the beginning. You're just sort of drawn into a story um, for reasons that hopefully become clear as the writing process advances. And in the case of that particular Western, I got to the end and they simply weren't clear to me still. Th that doesn't necessarily doom a work forever. Um, you know, I go back and look at it now. The distance has enabled me to see more clearly, I think, some of the things about it that I wasn't able to see at the time. But I think that it's a singular curse uh, of writing that you can get to the end of, you know, what was it? That was a 600-page novel. Um, you can get to the end of 600 pages and realize that that for the moment, you really have nothing to show for it because it wasn't the right thing. And And, you know, it doesn't mean that you haven't grown and developed in certain ways and you've, you've checked out certain routes on the map and they didn't lead to where you thought and that's progress in and of itself and that's all great. But for practical purposes, no one's going to see those 600 pages and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to lead to a second book and it's very, very dispiriting. 
but by the time I finished the first draft of Inland, I knew some of the things that it was about and I knew what had drawn me in. And if the writing process doesn't teach you those things about the project, it's really difficult to continue into another draft because without knowing them, I, I, I don't understand what it is I'm actually trying to, to draw out, you know, like what you're turning the volume up on in the work and, and, and how to connect the storylines and, and all this stuff. I think that takes such an inner strength. I mean, you have to do it, right? I mean, you have, you're an artist and you have to go through those times, but it's not like you spent, you know, years at the gym lifting weights on your arms and you're like, you know what? I had to work on my legs and you still walk away with this like cut arms. Right. It's like no one can see everything you've just been through. Right. It's it's really true. And I, and I think that um, one of the difficulties of writing too, is that it's so enmeshed in, in, a back, an academic background in academia and, and sort of the, the proofs of academia are similar to the proofs of writing, you know, um, to be a writer, quote unquote, um, once you've published is to continue publishing. And so there's this deficit that you're running, uh, um, you know, in the, in the years that are passing where you're like, well, I, I swear I'm right. Like I'm writing every day. I'm writing every day, but I can't show you my work. Um, which is, you know, antithetical to the way that we, we, we take those measurements in this particular field, right? Um, and, and, and that, that creates, a kind of, <laughs> creates a kind of panic in and of itself because, like, well, years are passing and, and there's no, you have nothing to show for it. You don't have the cut arms, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about your characters. So you had two main characters and two narrative arcs in Inland. You had Nora and you had Lurie. Lurie started out being from the Balkans, although he wasn't exactly sure that much about his heritage because his parents had died um, when he was young. And then Nora, who was basically a homesteader in Arizona. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about each and, and what inspired you um, to put them on the page and, and who you hoped they, they would be. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think in many ways, I was quite lucky with Inland at the beginning because the history, what drew me to this story was this particular convergence of those two narratives. One that, um, the, the convergence of the two narratives that made up the campfire story, right? One that was this homesteading moment at the turn of the century and one that was this long, long journey um, of really improbable origins that had, that had brought these characters to that particular place at that particular time. So history set what would have to happen at the end and everything else was able to come out of that. So I knew that I would have one narrative that lasted basically a lifetime that lasted 40 years and that the narrator there would have to be in the first person having processed the contents of his life a number of times by the by the time we, we, we meet him in the narrative, and for whom the arrival of, of the camels in the American Southwest was something that would lead him back to himself, something that would that would that would allow him to understand his place in the world and, and, and that would give him a profoundly emotional experience, even though he is often ill-equipped to <laughs> to actually understand what's going on. Uh, and the other narrative thread would, would, would have to be just a single day in the life of this homesteading woman uh, uh, about whose life I was really, really quite curious because when I heard the original campfire tale, my first reaction was like, oh my God, 
what was it like for this woman to just be going about her day and then have this encounter at the end of it that is, you know, shocking and improbable and inexplicable and, 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 you know, what's her frame of reference for it? And, and how does, you know, what is the life that this moment is disrupting? And that's how Nora came to be. And, and I, I messed around with her perspective for a little while because I couldn't quite figure out who she was and who she needed to be on the page. And what became clear as the first draft advanced was that where in the places where I wanted Lurie to be in awe of all the things that we associate with the Western landscape, I wanted Nora to be quite a practical soul and quite fed up of it. Um, and so her reactions to everything going on around her are just her responding to enormous environmental pressure. And so she became, you know, quite irate. She got this kind of patina of rage that she has to pass through before she has any interaction with anybody. And and it became clear to me, too, that a lot of things had happened leading up to this day. And she wasn't capable, owing to her personality, to um, tell herself the truth about them just yet. And in many ways, that's her, her character trajectory, to, to, to be able to face everything that's actually going on. And as a result, that had to be third person, because when you're when you write in third, close third, you can be as frank about the character's emotional and psychological perceptions as you can in first person. But you also create this very small slot between the author and the narrative consciousness where the reader can slip in and occasionally glimpse that maybe things aren't the information as it's being processed, perhaps isn't accurate maybe there's more here than, than meets the eye. Um, and that was really, really relevant, I think, to, 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 to the development of Nora's section. Both characters, I would say, start out with a great deal of loss. Um, for Lurie, it's, I mean, he, he begins the book talking about the loss of his, his mother and then his father and also his country and, and not knowing mm-hmm. that much about his history because of his age when he came to America. And then Nora had... Um, lost her daughter. And I, I'm wondering if, if that kind of loss is really important for you in fiction for a character to start out with, start out with, if it was more endemic to each of these characters or if it's fiction. That's a really good question. Um, it sneaks in to, to my work in an interesting way. Uh, 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 even when I'm trying to resist it, so I, I wonder if it's um, it's some sort of it's seated in some deeper place of questioning, you know. But a lot of my characters, not only in this book, the key to them becomes, you know, trying to figure out a loss that they're processing or that they're about to 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 endure or a loss that they're afraid of. I think that how we respond to the traumas we experience, either by embracing or denying them, is so crucial to particular moments of change in our lives and I think I I often I often meet my characters at those crossroads I don't know why (laughs) well it's interesting too because both characters also talk to ghosts or see ghosts they both have sort of different different abilities there Mm -hmm. and you know earlier you had talked about that you are superstitious and then you did that road trip you know, that brought you to the Southwest. And I'm wondering if you saw or felt echoes of ghosts, if if talking to ghosts comes from sort of your own superstition 
or or kind of the genesis of that and then living it out on the page yeah well i think that it's a it's a that's very much a a, a cultural thing um I, I think that in in my household certainly growing up and in and in the the wider family um we took ghosts as a given um and and it, it it wasn't even a matter of um in some ways that wasn't a matter of superstition it was just a matter of life like obviously you carry your um the 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 past with you at all times you interact with it in both positive and negative ways it influences your your entire frame of reference people have a tendency to you know i i, I grew up in the small apartment in in belgrade there were four of us living together um, and before I was born, my great grandmother had lived and died in that same apartment. And now both of my grandparents have passed away in that apartment. And, it, and there's this notion of just of, of, of a continuum of souls, um, permeating and surrounding everything. Um, which is, which I think is one of the things that I find, um, myself with it at, at odds in, in American culture, because when ghosts happen here and whether they happen, um, narratively or uh, when people talk about them, they, they happen as an anomaly, right? There's, there's always, a, the way hauntings work here is something terribly traumatic happened. Um, we're we're going to get to the bottom of this. Um, uh, you know, this is a, a soul that can't move on. Um, and, and in so many other cultures, it's just like, yeah, they're around. Don't, uh, you know, don't piss them off. It's fine. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that one of the things that... Um, that struck me when I was out West and, and that continues to strike me when I'm there is, you know, when we, when we think about rest uh, uh, as it pertains to death, when we think about the way we ritualize burial and the way we, you know, the sort of aspirational notion of placing a body in the correct configuration with the proper rituals and, and having that be having that ritual then trigger a state of transcendence. How does that work when place is so disrupted and when um, the living world is so violent? You know, the place names are always changing. Sacred spaces are always changing. You know, the, the presence of one lineage in an area um, is utterly disrupted, you know, uh, 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 and, and that violence in the living world felt matter of fact to me that, that, that it would, that it would apply to the, to the, to the world of the dead as well. And so I think that's why all these ghosts appeared in the book from very, very early on. I knew that it was going to be about turbulence that transcends the, the like the living continuum. Um, and, and, both of my characters, I think, in this book exist in, in a state of isolation. And one of the ways, one of the only ways that they can interact with history is to interact with these ghosts in, in really, really different ways. Because Lurie, when he's very young, is, is just able to see the, the risen dead. And he's, he spends his whole life, I think, trying to figure out the rules of why he can see some and not others and why they can see him and why they can't see each other. Um, and everything about this is sort of the foundational terror of his life, you know, um, because what it what it seems to indicate everything he's learned is that people who die violently or are buried improperly according to improper rituals uh, uh, or, or according to rituals that are incongruous to their beliefs end up walking around. And, and, you know, the likelihood that that will be the case for him, I think, is very, very great. And he's terrified of it. And then there's in the household, in Nora's household, there's Josie, who is this clairvoyant, or claims to be this clairvoyant um, from New York, which drives Nora crazy. 
which is ironic because she's been carrying on this conversation for 17 years with the what she insists is the imagined ghost of her dead daughter. And so I, I think that it's, it's, it's something also to do with, with um, personal response <laughs> and how we, uh, I guess, we perceive ourselves in relation to the dead. One thing that Lori kept going back to again and again with the people that talked to him was want. There was so mm-hmm. much want. And I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about this idea of want. And it was it was kind of expressed as, as these dead ghosts just had so many needs and, and desires and, and pure wants. But just the way that you, you alighted, I think, on that word and what that meant Want was, was, I think, one of the things that, that, that appeared really, really early on in the book, particularly in Larry's section and particularly in this, in this context. You know, and I think that it's, it's, um, it's one of the rules that he's always trying to figure out because they, uh, ghosts that he's able to see, if they physically touch him, he absorbs their wants and sometimes in, in, quite acutely um, and carries them with him his whole life. And then his life becomes about battling or giving into those wants. He has his, his, his brother who, who, who died very, very young and was a bit of a pickpocket and he's always lusting after physical objects. And then his, his older brother who, who has this, this not covetous, who has this um, particular relationship with water and having seen things that 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 he transfers onto Lurie and then Lurie as he gets older really avoids physical contact with ghosts because he's afraid of what he might see um and he's trying to figure out whether they whether what he ends up with is their last desire their greatest desire he he isn't sure that happened really early on in the, in, in 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 the very first draft and it was one of those things that that surprised me on the page like i didn't i didn't set out to write it but it just sort of ended up there you know one day i finished a writing day and 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 Lurie had had this physical contact with the with the with the corpse in the um with the first corpse, he he digs up and and, and he sees risen, um, and uh, uh, I was like, huh, okay, which is a great part of the writing process, you know. When it's surprising you, it's a it's a fun it's a fun thing to, to witness, um, and you know that you're you're making, um, you know, you know that something organic is happening under the surface that you're not like you're the you're not the only one driving the the car. Your subconscious is sort of in the passenger seat, occasionally taking the wheel. As I started to write Nora's section and investigate the motivations of all these neighbors, you know, with whom she lives and who are, who are experienced these really high stakes conflicts, but from the, from like a a place of petty uh, interaction, like years of having had these, these, you know, small town dynamics and, and everybody knows each other's business and everybody's been living in each other's pocket. I thought about how much you know, it became clear to me that that want and desire and 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 need were so inherently tied to the way that we mythologically frame the West. You know, this idea of taking, this idea of pillage, this idea of individual survival above the survival of of of, of uh, towns or even whole, you know, even whole cultures. And I was surprised at how it anchored to that. Um, and want felt like the right uh, felt like the right word. I want that. Even Lurie, like the way that he told his story, he was his narrative was in first person, but he was talking to his his camel and mm-hmm. his camel's name is Burke. And he was kind of recounting this tale to his camel. And Lurie, you know, he started off kind of being more of a 
of a ruffian. He committed a crime that he was being searched for by a marshal throughout the whole book. He was a wanted man. And he was also tender, and he ended up, um, you know, joining this this army corps that was doing this experiential or experiment to see if camels could could help them navigate and explore the West. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit just about the the camel aspect and who these army corps people were, and how much research did you do on on camels? Like you have a have a section where you write so so profoundly about how a camel drinks and what it looks like. <laughs> Thank you very much. I um I grew up around camels because because I, I I was in in Cairo for you know for so many formative years and and you know they're not everywhere in Cairo but when you go out to to Giza and when you go out to sort of the outskirts of the city they're just sort of there. Um, and, um, they felt so matter of fact to me cause I, cause I would see them around in such a, in such an early phase of life and, and they didn't feel particularly, um, awe-inspiring. And I, when I knew that I was going to write about the camel corps, I mean, it was so fascinating, this notion of, of this quite bizarre attempt. Um, well, I guess not so bizarre. I mean, this, this, attempt that sounds historically so bizarre because it's it's so uh, unknown in the context of our own history that that you know uh, the army brought over uh, first one and then two boatloads of camels from the Ottoman Empire uh, to to stake uh, to, to to test their feasibility um, in serving as pack animals in, in, in the arid southwest. And the fact that they came over with these young men who were their carers, um, who were Greeks and Turks and, and, and Arab men and uh, about whom we know nothing, um, and then lived here for decades, uh, camels and, and cameliers alike, uh, uh, and, and you know, had these encounters with, with local populations after the, the experiment was disbanded because it was, con- it was considered a failure. Um, the Civil War sort of put an abrupt end to it and the camels were auctioned off to mines and then they, um, a lot of them ended up free, you know, roaming the deserts and, and people would see them and be like, what is this? I found all of that incredibly fascinating because I think that, that so much of my, my interest in, in the way narrative works lies in, in what, what stories survive and what don't, you know, how simple something has to be to become part of the great national narrative um, and how, how complex narratives often fall away. Um, and so I, I did a tremendous amount of research. I, I, uh, I read, um, the, the, the two primary sources about the camels, which are the diaries of, uh, the superintendent of the expedition, Edward Fitzgerald Beale and, and his assistant, May Humphrey Stacy, who was this excitable young man on his first expedition. And, and I read those diaries to, you know, to, to, to get a handle on where they went and, and how it felt to travel with the, with the camels, particularly in the Southwest. But, but they weren't, you know, uh, uh, the, the people that I wanted to write about, that I was curious about, you know, these, these immigrants from the Ottoman Empire, they, they didn't feature in those diaries at all. You know, they, they had come over, they were speaking in a different language. Many of them clearly weren't literate in their own language, much less English. So, so no documentation from them survives. So I, I sought them out in newspapers. I, I, I tried to see whether they appeared in, in any stories down the line. Some of them did. And uh, I, I also went on the, I went on the camel 
Trek, uh, uh, Beale, because it was a military diary, Beale uh, wrote the longitude and latitude coordinates of every camp where the camels stayed from New Mexico to the shores of the Colorado River. And I went to those longitude and latitudes in the correct order, you know, uh, to, to, to see what the what the landscape was like. And, and uh, in many places, it was exactly as it as it was 160 years ago. In, in other places, it was, you know, the Albuquerque Greyhound Station, uh, which was also pretty incredible to see. Why didn't the camels work? Um, for for many reasons, um, the the first and 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 uh, most significant political reason is that the <laughs> that the underwriter of the whole experiment was then Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, who uh, very quickly became for for the correct reasons persona non grata in in the sort of general landscape of of the union he uh, once he became the president of the confederacy so uh anything associated with him sort of sort of uh uh was scratched out um but uh for you know reasons related more to stuff on the ground they were um they were difficult to handle i think the uh the soldiers working with them sort of considered the whole experiment rather undignified Beale didn't, the, the, the superintendent, he, uh, they really grew on him and, and he wrote with them with tremendous, he wrote about them with tremendous affection. And, and, um, he clearly thought that their use would be vital to, 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 to American expansion in the Southwest, but they, uh, their smell was unfamiliar to the other livestock. And so every time they would appear, um, all the mules and horses would go nuts and like flee. And uh, that was very inconvenient for a traveling column of, uh, you know, mule-drawn ambulances and uh, and mounted riders. <laughs> so yeah, they were they were uh, an inconvenience, an unmanageable inconvenience, um, and so they they were disbanded. And why did you want Lurie to narrate talking to Burke his camel? And did this take a while to discover this was how you wanted his voice to be? Yeah, that was the last thing I discovered about Lurie's narrative that that, that was crucial. Um, you know, I, I wrote his story, but I wasn't really sure how it was going to fit in with Nora's. Um, and in the first two drafts, he wasn't talking to Burke. And it didn't feel right. There was like an there was an element missing. Um, and then when I realized where he was speaking from, as in what condition and, and what, what place temporally he's speaking from, uh, it became clear to me that the only person he could be addressing, uh, is Burke and that his motivation in telling this story is to inspire Burke to make one last run for it because the reigning tension in his life and therefore Burke's is always whether he'll run or stay. And he had recently changed his mind about that, but circumstances had led him to change it back. And he's trying to, he's really trying to push Burke forward one more time. Can we talk a little bit about thirst? Um, sure. This was something that, that Nora, from the very beginning, you got the sense, you know, she's out there, the water has run dry, she hasn't drank all day. And it's obviously very, very physical, but also metaphorical. It's really difficult to appreciate the tremendous conveniences of modernity until you're without them. And one of the conditions of modernity also is that you are never really without them. 
if if you are if you are of a certain uh, fortune, you uh, if you have if you have certain luck in your life, you are never really without them, right? One of the uh, promises that modern nations make to their citizens is that your needs may be great, but they will never be dire. Having grown up elsewhere and in different circumstances, the idea of dire need, uh, of, of living without dire need, is still feels like a great uh, um, luxury sometimes. <laughs> so that being said, I, I think it became really clear to me that, that um, water was going to represent that. Um, for Nora, it was certainly something that, that you know, Lurie has an excess of it in his life in, in, in some ways because uh, he's traveling with a camel. Um, his fear of the absence of water leading to a collapse of his life isn't pressing the way it is for Nora. And it, it felt right to the time and it felt right to the experience of this novel to put that dire pressure on her in particular because I think it's human also to say well, we can we're going to get through this no matter what like it's going to be fine um it's one of the it's one of the the the, the reigning aspects of, of being human that, that that gets us to the next point right this sort of stubborn refusal to admit that your need really is as dire as it is <laughs> that's how that came about for Nora can we talk a little bit about the ending? We don't have to give it away in any sense, but were you working towards a certain ending? How did you come up with it? And can we say the ending sort of wrapped things up with a maybe a, a bit of a foreshadowing or a, just a bit of, of where you might find contentment and answers in a surprising way, if that's enough, if that's not giving too much away? That's not giving too much away at all. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the ending was something, the circumstances of the ending were something that I, I knew from the beginning because that meeting was the thing that moved me so deeply about this story that I, I didn't know, that I this, this legend I hadn't heard. And so the, that particular plot point I knew was going to be the ending from the moment I sat down to write Inland. Um, what I didn't know about it would be how to get there what the emotional and psychological conditions of the participants would be by the time we got there. Um, what it would, you know, why I had been so moved by it and what could possibly be moving about it in, in the, in the moment. Um, and I, I think that the process of discovery of every aspect of Nora and, 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 and Lurie's life that required the whole book to achieve all converged in that ending. And I so rarely write things in order, but I knew that I couldn't write that ending until the very, very end. So I had a, I had a placeholder. I had a very loose placeholder for a while that was, that was like the final chapter was just like, then this meeting happened. And it was like that for, I think, two drafts until I actually figured out what, what and why and how. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to read from Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master Margarita. Um, and uh, it's actually from the very beginning of the book. The, the, the book is set in Moscow during Soviet times. It chronicles the arrival of, of the devil in Moscow to sort of uh, 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 wreak havoc over a series of days um, and, and that ends in a, in a <laughs> psychological and physical bacchanal um, and general chaos. Uh, but at the beginning of the novel, we're with two characters, Berlioz, who is a, an editor, and 
his friend uh, who's a poet called Ivan Nikolaevich Ponyarev, uh, who writes under the pen name Homeless. And the two of them have arrived in Patriarch's Ponds Park um, and they've just gotten an apricot soda and now they're sitting down. Uh, it's a quiet evening. Nobody's around. And this is the passage. Now came the second strange thing, which involved only Berlioz. He suddenly stopped hiccuping. His heart thumped and dropped somewhere for a second, then returned, but with a blunt needle stuck in it. Besides, Berlioz was gripped with fear, unreasonable but so strong that he had the impulse to rush out of the park without a backward glance. He looked around anxiously, unable to understand what had frightened him. He turned pale, mopped his forehead with his handkerchief, and thought, what's wrong with me? This never happened before. My heart is playing up. I'm overworked. Perhaps I ought to drop everything and run down to Kislovodsk. At this moment, the fiery air before him condensed and spun itself into a transparent citizen of the strangest appearance. A jockey's cap on a tiny head, a checked jacket much too short for him, and also woven of air. The citizen was seven feet tall, but narrow in the shoulders, incredibly lean, and, if you please, with a jeering expression on his physiognomy. The life which Berlioz had led until this moment had not prepared him for extraordinary phenomena. Turning still paler, he stared with bulging eyes and thought with consternation, this cannot be. But alas, it was. Yeah, tell me why you chose that. Forays into uh, the meeting of the supernatural and the realist on the page, I think, are, are always quite fraught. I think that whenever you, um, or actually not even forays into that particular meeting, um, forays into any kind of disruption of the universal order on the page are, are tricky to pull off because the, the reader has to have the confidence to, to come along with you, right? You, you state things as a matter of fact, um, and, and hopefully the reader buys into them. And so the, the, the trap that you can fall into is, is twofold. One, that, that, that you won't pull it off with enough authority that the reader will accept it and take it as a given of the universe. And two, that you will attempt to lure the reader with too many explanations of why the circumstances of your slightly warped universe are the way they are. And I think that what Bulgakov pulls off here so masterfully and, and, and is the sort of gold standard of this book in, in general is the notion that he will tip his hat to realism and then he'll just walk by it. <laughs> um, if, if that makes, if that makes sense. And, and, and so he'll, he'll tip his hat sort of uh, to, pre to, to preempt the questions of the reader. Um, but then he won't dwell on them for too long. You know, Berlioz has a moment of doubt. He says, this isn't possible, but it is. And an authorial, authorial voice with a great deal more cachet than anything else on the page says, but alas, it was. Um, and in that instant, the reader has had all their qualms put down. You know, um, you've had your question. Your question is, this isn't possible, right? Someone with a lot more authority has told you, but it is. And now you're going to proceed through the narrative in that spirit. Um, and it's, it's so beautifully done in, in, in such, uh, with such economy um, and so much cheek, actually. Um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's magnificent. Can you read a passage that you wrote that changed a lot from the first draft? Maybe it was tricky or difficult. Yeah, I, um, here's a passage that changed a lot. Um, this is from, and, and I think that one of the reasons why this changed a lot was because it, 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 it well, actually, I'll, I'll read it first and then, and then I'll talk about it, I 
guess. This is um, from page 29 of Inland. Um, and the uh, this is from Nora's section. They've, they've gone down to the gulch. They've looked at some tracks that uh, Toby, Nora's youngest son, thinks uh, might belong to a, a beast that he thinks he's seen around the property. Nora's pretty dubious of this. It's, it's kind of a hellscape of a morning. Her husband isn't back. Her sons have gone off somewhere. She's pretty sure that they've gone to town, but, but she hasn't confirmed this just yet. Um, and they've gone back into the house. And her ward, Josie, um, has burnt uh, a bunch of eggs and, and, and um, it's just general bedlam. Um, and uh, Nora wants to know how much water is left in the, in the spring house. And Josie hasn't checked. Josie hurried into her hat. She was that sorry, ma'am. She was always that sorry. And there were countless transgressions to be that sorry for. Josie had the hazel eyes and broad forehead of Emmett's far-flung Scots kin. Her cheeks and throat were scattershot with freckles that flared an obscene pink after half a second in the sun. A triad of clefts fissured the bridge of her nose whenever she was under duress, and Nora was beginning to feel sorry for these hard-working lines. They might as well stake up for keeps for all the rest they got between admonitions. Passing Toby in the corridor, the girl grazed a hand over his bristly head. He seized at her and said, in what he thought was a whisper, Mama don't think the tracks are cloven. They don't strike her as tracks at all. Josie stooped down to him. Dark lines lattered the back of her dress, a rare sign of mortality, Josie sweating. Born a woman, after all. How do they strike you, she said. She, too, thought she was whispering. She thought Nora couldn't see the small shrug of Toby's shoulders or the way Josie's hair met the stubbled little forehead. They're tracks, said Toby. Well, then that's so. What we see with our hearts is often far truer than what we see with our eyes. Having wafted this profundity... Josie took her leave. Her ridiculous hat, crowned with turgid burlap sunflowers, presented almost too great a temptation when it came bobbing by the window moments later. It could be dislodged with the mere flinging of a shutter. But then the hat's occupant might be knocked down, or, given Nora's luck, knocked out. And then the day would fall to waste, confusion, reproach, water wasted on cleaning her up, hours wasted on summoning the doctor, tears wasted on patching up that pale forehead. And hadn't they all had their fill of stitches last night? So this paragraph <laughs> uh, gave me a lot of trouble because um, I, I I wrote it and rewrote it. Um, that chapter, the whole chapter, actually, where where they're in the um, in the house together, and and Nora and Josie meet for the first time, because it's it's reliant on so many on on so much cruelty from Nora, and it's really difficult to throw your character under the bus in that way. Um, but I couldn't crack the interaction there. It was always too um, forgiving of Josie. It was always too lenient. Um, and and her the level of Nora's jealousy in that interaction, where she sees this intimacy between her her you know her baby boy and and this girl whom she disdains with all her heart. Um, it, it it never had the right timber. It had to be something that. Um, what I was trying to do was, was, was achieve a balance where um, her terror of, of the isolation that, that might bespeak and her derision of Josie were on equal levels and, and directly correlated to one another. And I just couldn't get it for the longest time. Um, and, uh, and, and I think um, in the end, it was one of the final things I worked <laughs> 
I worked on. I was still working on it and, you know, and they were taking the draft out of my hands and it was like one minute. Um, but yeah, that presented a lot of, a lot of trouble. Where do you write? Um, I write at my desk, uh, on, <laughs> uh, in New York. Um, and on my, you know, 15 year old keyboard looking at my 15 year old screen. <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I used to, back when I owned a car, one of my favorite things to do was drive and listen to music to get away from writing. And I would make soundtracks that were meant to embody different characters or different chapters or different problems. And I would listen to these to these uh, playlists or soundtracks um, in order to feel like I was still working. Now I do the same thing, but I walk around Riverside Park. Um, it doesn't have quite the same effect. You can't zone out the way you can in a car. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband. Uh, he's my first reader. Um, and actually, we often he's also a writer and we'll often read paragraphs to each other from across the house. <laughs> How have you dealt with rejection? Poorly. Uh, no, um, <laughs> my ideal is um, if, if the rejection seems to have merit, I try to interrogate whether there's an honesty there that, that, that I haven't squared with. You know, if it's, if it's something about the, the quality of the story, the doneness of the story, the doneness of the work, I try to take that on board. If the rejection has to do with, um, with a, a lack of ability to appreciate the, the, what, what I feel is a finished work or to see what, what I'm trying to do, then, then I'm, I've actually gotten relatively good at being like, oh, well, this is not for you. What is your favorite word? Defenestrate. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I really, uh, I really, really appreciate this. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Taya Abret, author of Inland. You can follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. And please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and your donations keep the dialogue going. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.